This is Eager Feet, a conversational podcast where we journey from the mundane to the sublime and back. I am Cameron Surrey, lay tertiary chaplain here amidst the hubbub of students preparing for exams at the Auckland Catholic Tertiary Chaplaincy, 110 Simon Street. Today I'm joined by Thomas Yates, who is completing his PhD in philosophy at the University of Auckland. Tom's thesis is looking at what it takes to be considered blameworthy for an immoral act. So Tom, the piece that you sent me really looking at the question of what it means for someone to be blameworthy, worthy of blame, Mm -hmm. And you're arguing against the position which has been put forward relatively recently, I suppose, Mm -hmm. called volitionism, Mm -hmm. where you're basically only worthy of blame if you did something wrong sort of with the full knowledge that it was wrong or something like that, right? And that one of the consequences that that has is that a whole lot of people and, and things that we would normally assume were blameworthy aren't under yes. that definition. Yes, that's right. Um, and so you're trying to uh, articulate maybe a, a more accurate account of blameworthiness that fits with our intuitions better. Yeah. Um, and so the position that you have articulated is something like um, to be blameworthy means that you're at least aware of better alternatives, better paths of action. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, you, you, you didn't choose those better ones, you know, you, you chose the other one. And, yeah. And, and the other one was wrong. Yeah. In, in that sort of situation, um, we can say that you're, you're, bl- you're blameworthy. Mm-hmm. So one preliminary question I have is, you use the term blameworthy, is that for a very specific reason? Is it different from being guilty? Um, mm. Or is it just another word for the same thing? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I think I would probably want to say initially that no, they're not the same. Uh, To be guilty, uh, just for different reasons, so I think guilt might mean that, you know, you have actually done something wrong, Um, and say in the the eyes of the law, you might be guilty, say, for example, of a traffic offence or something like that, but you haven't necessarily satisfied... um, any kind of epistemic condition uh, with regard to that offence, so you haven't, you didn't knowingly um, commit that traffic offence or something. Um, and so I think initially I'd, I'd want to say, well, where, where is blameworthiness uh, is, requires these strong kind of epistemic conditions, maybe guilt doesn't. Um, but I think I'd be persuaded of an argument maybe to show that at least in our moral discourse and in the realm of morality, if you're sort of morally guilty, then maybe that means that you're, you're blameworthy um, or culpable. So I would want to say that blameworthiness and culpability are, close, are closely linked. Right. Uh, they're roughly the same, I'd say. Um, but guilt could, could simply be imputed on the basis of the fact that you have done something wrong, at least under some 
broad description, uh, and it's somewhat attributable to you. So it can be attributed, maybe even to an aspect of your character or uh, some evaluative standard that you um, want to endorse. So maybe your evaluative stance or something like that. Yeah. But it doesn't yet follow that you are blameworthy, uh, at least on the view that I'd want to put forward. Right. Because I suppose we already use guilt in the um, in the area of like breaking the law. Yeah. And so maybe it's it's good not to use that word because. There's ambiguities there because, yeah. like you've said, you can be guilty of breaking the law, but maybe not morally culpable. Yes. Um, for, yes. for what you've done. That's right. Yeah. And imagine in this um, in this episode we'll be talking a little bit more about you know this idea of say inherited guilt that you find in Christian tradition, um, and I and I think saying that we might have a, a kind of inherited guilt. Uh, of the kind that would underline this idea of original sin, maybe, uh, doesn't necessarily commit you, I think, to saying that maybe it's inherited responsibility. Sure. Um, so that might be an interesting thing to talk about uh, yeah. uh, later. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point. Um, just a bit more biographical, like, what got you into, uh, or got you interested in this topic of, um, of research? And yeah, how did that go, and, and maybe where can you see it taking you? Oh wow, yeah, so that's a big question. Yeah, um, so I think, so I did an undergrad in theology, I um, was very interested in that, I loved my um, more philosophy, philosophically inclined papers, um, and that's what led me to do philosophy at, at Auckland. Um, and I started my master's research at Auckland, uh, looking at a, a, a particular issue within epistemology, mm. um, I was—I really liked. Uh, so I really like approaches to epistemology called uh, virtue epistemological approaches. So they want to say that um, so certain important epistemic goods like knowledge, understanding, wisdom can be achieved through the exercise of intellectual or epistemic virtue where, um, at least on my preferred understanding of them, those are excellent intellectual character traits. Um, uh, so like attentiveness, uh, intellectual courage, um, open-mindedness, um, uh, self-scrutiny, sort of the willingness to be questioned and stuff like that. Um, and I thought there was a strong link between those exercises of those virtues and, um, and certain uh, knowledge Right. But then I was I had the question okay, well what exactly what kinds of epistemic goods could they help to explain? Um, and I was really interested in those epistemic goods which were to do with being responsible for your beliefs. Um, so under what conditions do you believe responsibly? Right. In other words. And I thought that appealing to virtue uh, and the exercise of intellectual virtues would help to explain that. Mm. Um, but throughout my study, uh, so the master's got uh, sort of converted into a PhD project, um, I was more and more interested in, uh, in sort of the assessment of the responsibility of, um, for our actions as well, so not just responsibility for belief. Right. Um, and, and that was partly because 
I was more and more inclined to think that to be responsible for believing something, um, you had to be responsible for some culpable action. Not responsible, at least if we're thinking in terms of culpability or blameworthiness. You had to be responsible for some action which led to that belief. Okay. Um, so, say you're, you're crazy close-minded. Um, uh, you, you believe very close-mindedly um, in Scientology, and the only r reason that you really believe that is, is because earlier on, um, when you started to flirt with the idea of Scientology, you were ex you were quite gullible, um, and you uh, you weren't sufficiently attentive to the evidence, and so on, and you, you took certain actions which led to this culpable right. this culpable um, belief would be the idea, but then. You know, then I sort of thought to myself, well, you know, blame for belief, that's quite a strong thing. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure what I think about it, especially in a case of, say, responsibility, uh, uh, blameworthiness for something like Scientology. Like, the, 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 the beliefs for which we really ought to be blamed seem to be uh, beliefs like, you know, neo-Nazi beliefs or something like that. You know, right. white supremacist beliefs which will, which may very well issue in action. And it's actually the strong link between the way that the, the, between the uh, apparently culpable belief and, um, and potentially any dangerous or morally uh, reprehensible actions that might result from it. Um, that, that link, um, I think, became more interest to me. Right. Um, and through so sort of further research, um, I realized that there was a really interesting literature essentially on on this in some sense on this link um, and has, has been brought into sort of further clarity into where the, the, the sort of contours of the debate have been fairly well outlined now thanks to some recent really good literature reviews on mm. it so what the, the general question is yeah what uh, what sort of epistemic or awareness conditions need to be satisfied um, in order for you to be responsible for your action. Mm. But it turns out that there are certain accounts of, of, of that of that, um, that uh, require that you trace responsibility or culpability for an action back to culpability or responsibility for your beliefs or right. for, say, ignorance, yeah. and then you're only responsible for those beliefs or, uh, or for that ignorance. Uh, because you, the actions flow yes. necessarily from yes. those. Yes, exactly. Um, and because beliefs um, are the outcome of prior actions that you had as well. So the, the question about blameworthiness for belief states, like ignorance, is still relevant, um, and a section of my thesis, a thesis is devoted to that. So I... But some people deny that kind of tracing idea that you trace culpability for an action sometimes back to the culpability for the belief that issued in the action um, and and then you trace culpability for the belief back to a prior action that you had. Mm. Um, uh, some people want to actually say there are these big problems with tracing. But anyway, um, so and that's kind I of the... I guess the tracing never stops, does it? I mean... Well, yeah, that's, that's the worry. But, uh, um, well, the thing is... Um, uh, so, according to volitionism, that story that I'm wanting to critique or at least revise, yeah. it does stop at some point. It stops when you act contrary to what you think is best um, or what you th uh, 
or when you know that it's wrong and yet you act contrary to that mm. um, and you just kind of do it anyway that's supposed to be that's supposed to stop the tracing um, essentially so you, you don't have to then explain because there's no sort of prior belief that is motivating your action in fact mm. all of your beliefs suggest don't act and yet you act anyway so mm. you're kind of culpable for the way that you're interacting with your beliefs mm. uh, in, a, in a quite a direct sense so anyway, so that's kind of what explains the the general um, background. <laughs> it's yeah. quite a long, it's quite a long story, but you know you have to kind of follow your nose when, when you're doing research yeah. to keep yourself interested, I suppose. Mm. Um, and then in terms of the future, yeah, I guess um, I'm quite keen to look at. Um, I'm quite keen to extend some of the stuff that I'm working on into the context of. Um, justifiability of religious, of acting, um, of religious commitment, mm. of religious faith, where I believe that faith isn't just an intellectual state, actually is an action, it's a commitment, mm. um, and uh, to what extent we can evaluate the culpability of religious agency, um, so acting, for instance, uh, in the way that you think would be worse um, by continuing to believe. Mm. Um, or, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, whether that uh, confers any culpability on you and so on. So, mm. yeah, that's the future. Interesting. Yeah, because I guess we we do tend. Well, maybe this is a question. Do we do we tend to hold someone morally responsible for their religious beliefs? Say, especially if you look at an extreme position like religious fundamentalism or something like that. Um, clearly we would hold people responsible for whatever violent actions they might yes. commit. But do we also hold them responsible for holding the belief in the first place? I mean, yeah. I'm not sure. What do you think? Yeah, so I would be inclined to think that yes, we do. Um, and this isn't too surprising. I mean, certainly in the past, um, there are plenty of almost horrible examples of people holding others responsible for their beliefs by, um, for instance, burning them at the stake. Heretics, you know, for mm. believing the wrong things. So that's sort of an extreme example, but modern, in, in today's age we certainly do seem to hold each other responsible for them. Um, you know, uh, uh, sort of hard-nosed atheists can't, can't figure out how it is that you believe what you believe if you're mm. a religious person, yeah. um, for instance, and, and even and through further discussion, it comes to light that you know you've got reasons for your beliefs and so on, and but you realise maybe that you've got te you've got some tension with your belief, and you re re recognise the attractiveness of another position, yeah. and, and then you might be then it seems then that you seem to be you have kind of a control over what you believe. Um, mm. You can influence your beliefs <laughs> by exposing yourself to other material, or by question, intentionally questioning yourself, or um, exercising maybe your intellectual virtues or your intellectual vices you know, mm. by, um, and that seems to influence whether you hold a belief or not and yeah. to the extent that responsibility consists in those kinds of relations of control to what you to these states it seems then that you can be responsible um, though again that's sort of more of a philosophical justification for us being responsible for beliefs uh, there's another question about yeah, that sometimes people say oh you know the only reason why I say you're an adherent to that particular religion, say you're a Christian, is because of 
you, the environment you grew up in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's something that true that they're onto, but I don't know. I I, I don't think that's the full picture. And no. because because there is that responsibility and that. Yeah. I mean, we all know people who have grown up in a one religious tradition and you know departed from it. Mm -hmm. In fact, these days that's almost the norm. Um, yeah. Amongst, um, say, uh, people in young people in Western countries, uh, yeah. and then at the same time, you know, people who have um, who have not grown up with any particular religious tradition, but then have later embraced one. Or yep. so, so while there might be a, a large number of people who just continue on with whatever tradition they're given, yep. there's a significant number who don't. Yeah, and that's so, right. Um, you can't just make a claim that it's all just your environment. That it's all environment that explains it. Yeah, that's right. Um, some people might still say, yeah, but are people blameworthy? You know, for for their for their beliefs, maybe they're morally reprehensible or un or their epistemically undesirable beliefs. Um, so some people actually try and create a divide um, or a dichotomy between uh, responsibility descriptions and blameworthiness descriptions. Mm. Now that certainly makes sense um, when you're saying that someone's responsible for something very good, like an inventor creates something new, and so that you, you say that they're praiseworthy, um, and praiseworthy seems to imply responsibility. Yeah. The question is whether responsibility for anything, a good or a bad action, implies either that they're praiseworthy or that they're blameworthy. Some folks actually recently have offered reasons for thinking that actually that's not the case. So maybe, yeah, we have control over beliefs and even our reprehensible beliefs, but say even if a crazy um, neo-Nazi or white supremacist uh, has had full control over what they believe, but say they had the belief in no way disposed them to having any kind of prejudice, say, against a certain people group, against immigrants or, or, or something like that in a Western country. You know, in no way, it, if, imagine that this belief in no way entered into any relation to their actions, to their, right. the way that they... Um, so it might have given them justification for doing, you know, um, um, immoral things, but they didn't actually, they didn't make that connection. Yeah, yeah. Is that what yeah, you're saying? Yeah. Um, yeah, and that that's certainly um, that's certainly that's certainly a, a certain issue. Um, but sort of you know, imagine that these beliefs so imagine that you've got this neo Nazi who um, has has this strong belief but for some reason that belief can't connect to action anywhere mm. in any way. So they're actually acting on the face of it, they're acting fine. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they're treating all kinds of people equally, um, lovingly, and so on, and yet they've got this crazy belief. You might wonder, even if they were responsible for it, they're not blameworthy for the belief, even though it's a, a reprehensible belief, um, because it's just it's not significant. It's not connected to action. So, so there's a sense, maybe there might be a case for the blameworthiness of belief, but only on the condition that the belief enters into relations. Um, with, with actions. Yeah. Although, uh, if it doesn't enter into relations with any actions, then wouldn't you question whether they really believe it? Yeah, exactly. So, that's right. So then the reply, that's a very good reply. Yeah, I think and that, that reply has been made. Well, yeah. what, what does it mean to have a belief? Well, it's to actually be disposed to feel, to think, to act in certain ways. Um, 
in relation to that commitment. Mm. Yeah. And this leads into a question uh, about how you have um, formulated what it means to be blameworthy, right? So um, that you're blameworthy if you do the, you do the wrong thing um, where you, you you had a belief that there were better alternatives. Yeah. So what do we mean by you had a belief in better alternatives? So, for example, let's look at a scenario. I'm thinking of an action that you perform without really deliberating, but more as a as a, um, a response, maybe a highly emotionally charged response. Right. So you're walking along the street with your friend, and maybe someone comes up with a knife and is threatening your friend, um, like trying to rob them, and you run off because mm -hmm. you, you're terrified of knives. Um, more terrified than most people are of knives. <laughs> and, and, you, and you run away. Um, without even th it's not like you stand there for five seconds wondering what to do and, and you think of the various alternatives ahead of you. No, you just run because you see the knife and bam. Right? So um, now on reflection, you, you might have a belief that there's a better way I could have conducted myself. But it wasn't present in the moment. It wasn't what, um, there was no rejection of that course of action that sure. you made in the moment. So how does that play into your, how you've articulated mm, Great, great, great question. Um, just to begin with, as a general um, comment, so I believe that the action is, um, that required for blameworthiness for wrongdoing is that wrongdoing is committed, um, that you believe that there is a better alternative. Um, but also that certain other conditions must be met too. So like you need to have control over your actions. So you know if if you if you're completely if you have no control whatsoever. Right. Um, yet you believed it at the time that a better alternative would have been better. You know if say say you couldn't have chosen the alternative for some reason something was stopping you maybe. Mm. Um, then it would seem that you're 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 escape blame for it. Um, so that would be kind of like a control, an excuse for your wrongdoing um, and the fact that you lacked control. So somehow it was, you were blocked from doing that or something. Or, you know, uh, that could be put in terms of freedom or the choice to do otherwise or something like that. Um, though I'm not too sure exactly where I sit on this idea that there needs to be an actual uh, choice to do otherwise to be responsible. So that's a really interesting question in and of itself. We don't have time to go into that, um, and the other potentially other conditions need to be met too. Mm. So it's kind of so the view that um, I'm defending in the thesis is primarily um, just that a necessary condition for responsibility is that you believe in a better alternative, not that it's sufficient for responsibility, not that just if you have that belief and you do wrongdoing you are blameworthy, mm. just that it's required. Right. So so usually in the, in this when when sort of trying to put forward to try and sort of get our intuitions about that we we will say like uh, let's assume that all other conditions are, responsibility conditions are satisfied and now let's look at particular particularly what whether the epistemic condition mm. forces us to revise our judgment of blameworthiness or not um, yeah. and that's very much what um, I'm having to do in the thesis but anyway so in that in that case um, it depends on whether, so this is the case of you see your friend being attacked by an, uh, someone wielding a knife, but uh, you, you just 
instantaneously react by running away, um, sort of cowardly, and yeah. it would seem you so you do the wrong thing by not trying to intervene. Um, and even though on reflection you you would you would say that at at that time you did believe it would have been better to um, try and intervene you know, to stop the stop the attack. So. Um, it, it partly it depends on whether you have control in that moment, um, I think. So this actually does tie into the, um, maybe another condition of responsibility. Yeah. Um, so if you were, if, if you had some kind of crazy bias or prejudice or compulsion um, such that uh, if you saw a knife, you just ran. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was kind of like, under any conditions, if you saw a knife, um, and under conditions where that knife was, was going to threaten someone else, mm. you'd just run. Yeah. Then uh, I would question your control sure. um, over it. That doesn't immediately um, entail that you're not responsible, though, for it, because I think that in case, just like in cases where when you do something wrong while drunk, uh, you can be responsible for that, because you're responsible for getting drunk in the first place, I yeah. think that you might have been responsible in this case mm. for... Um, maybe you were responsible for the fact that you have that crazy uh, bias yeah. in cases like that. Um, yeah, or that you haven't maybe identified or taken the steps to sort of try and cool Yes, it exactly. And maybe yeah. that's been brought to light in your life. Like, you have this strong fear or phobia. What's that's the word? It's a phobia. Knifeophobia. <laughs> Um, and maybe it's that's it's it's become apparent to you, or uh, you had the opportunity to get to seek counselling about it or something. I don't know, you know, therapy, um, and yet you chose not to do that. You know, then maybe there's a sense in which you were down the line responsible for uh, the way you behaved at the time. Yeah. Um, but if you had so, so then you can look at the case again. Suppose you did have control. You know, you just, you're looking kind of, um, you know, maybe you had the chance to do otherwise somehow. Um, mm. You were properly reasons-responsive. Some have a reasons-responsive account of control. Um, Fisher and Revisa have that kind of account. Maybe you were at the time. Um, maybe the alternatives popped into your mind, but you just, sort of out of efficiency, you, you sort of just let yourself uh, take where your desires were leaning, mm. which is, you let yourself be guided by your desires, I mean, to run away. Um, maybe you could say you had control or something at the time, and even if maybe you didn't, it didn't occur to you that it would be better morally to actually intervene. So that would be a case where you've got control, you did sort of run away, cowardly, um, and the alternatives did did occur to you, but you didn't believe that it was better at the time. Right. Or, you did believe it at the time, but it wouldn't, didn't occur to you. So there's a distinction between mm, okay. occurrent belief and dispositional belief. So there are plenty of things that I dispositionally believe. Um, uh, so I, just, you know, five minutes ago, I dispositionally believed that Kazakhstan, the country, was north of New Zealand. Um, and now that's on my mind, so it's a current. But previously to that, yes, I certainly yeah. believe that Kazakhstan was north of Auckland, um, right. uh, north of New Zealand and Auckland, of course, too. But there might, so there might be 
dispositional, is that right? Yeah. Dispositional beliefs that you don't kind of currently have access to or something like that. Y yes, exactly. So there's a really interesting question then about the accessibility of dispositional beliefs. And Especially so, in a crisis situation. Yes. And some people say that when, so even if you, so this, this is a, um, this is a position that's defended by volitionists and generally anyone who says that responsibility depends on the occurrence of certain beliefs about with regard to your action. Mm. They will actually say that no, to be directly responsible for action you need to currently believe that it is wrong. The right. volitionists will say that. Yeah. Or um, you could spin what the view that I'm trying to put forward as a version of that too where you say the alternative would be better um, in your mind at the time, in your thoughts, in your feelings. Mm. So if you, if in this case, even though I had full control over the situation, it didn't occur to me that it would be better, even though I deep down believed that it would be better, yeah. then I wouldn't be directly responsible for it. Um, but I think, so I, I certainly believe that if you currently believe that it would be better to um, to do an act, mm. uh, an alternative, and the act is wrong, and you do it, then you know. So uh, believe that that occurred, believe that you're responsible. But um, I think that uh, th this is something that I'm sort of putting forward in the thesis as well. I think that there's a distinction between different kinds of dispositional beliefs. There's sort of the more accessible kinds and the inaccessible kinds. If your belief was accessibly dispositional or something like that. Um, then I think that would be sufficient to establish your culpability or responsibility. Mm. But if it was deep down, it was somehow repressed or incredibly unlikely to occur to you for some reason at mm. that time, um, then I'm inclined to think that it would be, uh, it, mm. you would then have to trace culpability. So then the question, obviously, that my burden then is like, well, how do you distinguish between accessible and inaccessible dispositional beliefs? Um, and I try yeah, and maybe there's that a bit of a grey, um, you know, a fuzzy line um, yeah. um, between them. Yeah, because I was thinking of another example um, where you say you, you, you've got a girlfriend and you break up with her. And at the time you break up with her, you know, you've got certain reasons. And, um, and so you, know, you, you think that's the right thing to do. Um, but maybe a year or two later, reflecting on that, um, maybe you're aware that after following that she um, she went through a, quite a rough patch in her life you know for other reasons as well but that you breaking up with her didn't help and and so and then you it's sort of there in your mind and maybe a year or two later you sort of think oh man I, I think I did the wrong thing and you feel regret but you also feel certain like guilt and and you you would be willing to actually apologize, meaning take um, the blame, some blame for the situation that she found herself in afterwards. Mm. Even though at the time, you know, you, you just you thought about it and you're like, no, this is, this is the right thing to do and you didn't have any fully obvious moral qualms about it. Because um, I, I think this is maybe an experience that is not unusual. Yeah. Of reevaluating the past, and it might even yeah. be reevaluating the past in light of 
new beliefs that you didn't really have back then, or you, yep. maybe they weren't very explicit, they weren't very worked out. Maybe you were immature, whatever. But you still feel guilty about what you've done. It's, it's a strange thing. Mm. Because it's still the same you that did these things. Yeah. Um, it's not some other person that did them, you know, some, some immature um, person. It's not ah. it's me, I did them. And um, so, yeah, I, I think it's very, it's, a, it's quite a mysterious issue. Mm. So, yeah, what, what would be your comments there about that sort of revision of your beliefs and therefore a, a revision of your um, blameworthiness? Yeah. Now that's a very, very good question. <laughs> I need I need people uh, asking me these questions more often. <laughs> um, so I so okay. My initial response would be to say something like this: to say that at the time you were only culpable or responsible for doing so. Uh, for for the now perceived wrong of breaking up with her, um, if you at the time believed that it was the wrong, you know that, that that you had a better alternative to actually stay with her or something like that, um, or you can you, you could, or in fact, uh, your judgment at the time, even though it seemed well informed, was and well deliberated about, was traceable back to an earlier time where somehow the standards by which you, um, you know, judged the, the rightness of your relationship later um, were formed culpably. So you trace back again, it's, it's that right. tracing story, back yeah. to a time where you did something that you believed would be the worst alternative. Mm. So in other words, you trace back to another moment where you did the, the, the worst alternative, uh, the, the worst, the worst option. Yeah. So, so... That, I guess that's that's partly because that would be consistent with uh, the theory that I'm putting forward. Mm. But to explain the guilt later on um, and the revision of the situation, mm. um, I, 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 I would be inclined to say, well, uh, point out a few things. So one of them is that it's possible to take responsibility for something. Um, and that can mean to sort of take blameworthiness in some way, so sort of take the blame in the way that you put it. Yeah. Um, and that's a really tricky one to try and understand. You know, what does it mean to sort of take the blame blame for it? It's not, it's not like you are changing the past fact that at the time maybe you weren't responsible or at least blameworthy, uh, blameworthy for it. Um, but it's sort of like now you're willing to take the uh, take some criticism about it, um, um, and and so on. So that certainly taking responsibility is a possibility, and it's certainly one that I haven't investigated enough in the thesis of what the implications of that might be. Um, but that would be it seems to be like a relevant um, consideration. Um, but. I also think too that your feeling of guilt about the situation may still be appropriate, even if you weren't culpable in the first place. Uh, so you realise that it was wrong, maybe, to break up. 
um, and you led her through that whole process and it was emotionally traumatic and etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, it, it seems that this recognition later on would be would certainly warrant feeling a kind of a, maybe a guilt about it you know um, but uh, or maybe a regret you know or some sort of remorse or something uh, but that doesn't imply that back then you were blameworthy or even that now you you somehow are taking responsibility or that somehow you are now blameworthy you know um, in any way so and I think what this shows is that our natural our reactive attitude of guilt or regret uh, need not indicate responsibility uh, now that view actually is been rejected by some some people so some people would say no no um, if uh, if it's appropriate to feel feel guilt mm. in other words to d direct yourself um, this emotion um, then that just that that just means that you're blameworthy uh, uh, so some people very much wed blameworthiness very closely to our interpersonal reactions to other to others guilt to me resentment to someone who has wronged you mm. so if someone has hurt you then you um, the way you blame them is by resenting uh, resenting them um, and then indignation toward the person who wrongs someone else and you believe it's an injustice mm. um, uh, would be the characteristic blaming emotion uh, in that situation um, and so what they'd say is they'd, they'd say that for you to that appropriate that Blameworthiness just consists in being the appropriate target of either guilt, um, indignation, or resentment. And if you are the appropriate target of it, um, then you are blameworthy. And so, in this case, if you started feeling guilt, guilty, uh, then that for them that would be a sign of blameworthiness. So, yeah. But I would, I would, I, I've got some reservations about that kind okay. of view. Well, it literature. raises for me the question. The deeper question of what do we even mean when we say that someone is blameworthy? So, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm trying to trying to sort of put it, I guess, into uh, more basic terms to try and work out what what are we saying? Because blameworthy is like this larger term that seems yeah. to incorporate a whole lot of um, smaller qualities or something. Yeah. So is it that that? There's been an, some kind of injustice. So if we look at it in terms of justice, like you've been the perpetrator of an injustice, and you're blameworthy, means that you're now obliged to address that injustice somehow. Um, you know, to, to, yeah. to try and put it right somehow, as much as it's possible to put it right. Yeah. And whether that's simply by making an apology, or whether it's by actually doing something to undo. Um, the harm you cause. I guess an apology yep. can partly do that. Yep. Uh, is is that what we mean by blameworthiness? Um, yeah. That it's obliging you towards some kind of action, you know, that would address the injustice. Is that what we mean, or is it something? Yeah, else? that's a really good question. Uh, there's of course a lot of disagreement around the no, nature of blameworthiness, um, and. It, 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 that seems quite plausible to say that that if you are blameworthy, then it follows that 
you now have an obligation to somehow re to, to redress or to make, yeah. um, to make amendments. Mm. Um, but I don't think that the that the nature of blameworthiness just consists in your now having that obligation. Um, so. Right. So, in other words, that there's nothing else to be said anymore. Like, once you've got that obligation, um, that means that you're blameworthy, that's it. No, so, like, to me, to be blameworthy is um, the nature of it, at least, you know. Uh, as philosophers, you know, we try and sort of get to the nature of things. <laughs> yeah. Probably infuriatingly for people. Yeah. But um, I would say that, qu quite simply, it is to be worthy, worthy of blame, where blame is a certain kind of response uh, to... Uh, conduct, uh, to especially wrongful or bad conduct, um, or something else like a, a, some like a blameworthy belief, sort of an undesirable belief, mm. um, which the the agent had responsible responsibility uh, for. So, to me, to blame someone just is to make the judgment that they have say for a, for a wrong action is to make the judgment that they have done wrongdoing and that they are in the wrong for it, that they are responsible for it. Mm. So, but doesn't so then, that word responsible self-indicate the need for a response, right? So it's kind of like, um, so I'm, 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 I'm totally agreeing with you, but I'm wondering, is that still basically saying that, so you know, you're the, there's an injustice that, that you have... Um, sort of perpetrated, yeah. and to say that you're responsible means to say that you have an obligation to do something um, to redress that injustice. Yeah, I, um, so, I, I certainly think that that is, I think that's a consequence of the fact that you just are responsible for doing something wrong. So blameworthiness is blameworthiness is just um, that you're worthy of the judgment yep. that you have done something wrong and that yep. you're responsible for it. Um, now, if you are, if you have done something wrong, especially an injustice towards someone else, and you're responsible for it, um, it would seem that you now need to try and make amendments, you need to seek redress and, and um, forgiveness and so on. Uh, it, it, that certainly seems plausible. I'm not too sure whether I'd build that into sort of the nature of being responsible or blameworthy. Partly because I, um, that's partly also to do with my view about what responsibility sort of is. Um, so uh, the response that's, you might say, relevant or that I envision when I think of responsibility um, is your responsiveness to reasons at the time of acting. So if you're morally responsible, that's just for your action. That just means to, that, that just is to say that at the time you were responsive to the reasons, the moral reasons for and against the action. So you're sort of morally response able. You know, you're right. you're able. To you could have sense. acted otherwise. Yeah, maybe you could have acted otherwise, almost. Yeah. yeah, so it's a strong link, I think there's a strong link between responsibility attributions and sort of control or freedom attributions, mm. which is what licensed that classic distinction, that, yeah. that classic um, connection. And, and in some ways, also the view that I'm 
visioning is, is, a, is a retrospective account of responsibility. It's not a prospective or forward-looking account. So, um, it, to, to be blameworthy, it's not the case that, that you're only worthy of blame where, um, because blame would lead to a positive consequence. So, so some people have a very forward-looking account of responsibility. Yeah. yeah. So, according to which you're only responsible if actually, if if if, peop, if blame directed against you would likely cause you to do something mm. good in the future. Like, so for instance, not do the same thing again. You know. <laughs> Uh, and so these kind of forward-looking, uh, forward-looking, uh, forward-looking accounts are, have certainly been found in the literature, uh, though I think that they they don't account for all the dimensions of responsibility in some ways, and I think that very often um, they don't account for our uh, strong intuitions that someone is just blameworthy for what happened, um, and just a pure just because of what they've done. Not, mm. not because they are the apt candidate for a response which would cause them to do something good. So, for instance, right. if I blame if I blame Hitler for what happened, um, and, and I say that Hitler was blameworthy, I'm not sort of. I mean, I, I, it's, it's sort of hard to almost imagine a kind of forward-looking account about that, especially yeah, so re- retrospective. Right. But it seems plausible for me to say, well, I, I blame him for what he did. Um, yeah. and he was responsible for what he did and sort of judged those things. Um, he doesn't have to come back yeah. from the grave and... Yeah, no, it doesn't have to sort of somehow change or... It's it's not like it's only justified for me to blame him if somehow it would cause him to do something, you know, good in the future because it's not yeah. possible for him to come back to the grave and do that. Um, so, but yeah. The, so, yeah, I think I, I understand now that distinction that you're making. Yeah. Um, Perhaps in situations unlike with Hitler, we you've actually got someone who's alive and and, and present. Yeah. Then maybe still there's there's both um, aspects going on. That there's the backward-looking responsibility. Yeah. And that if you've got that, then that can then generate a forward-looking responsibility. Yes. Okay. Good. Um, so I would be totally willing to say that, um, though I'd say that the you, that that there's an equivocation with the word responsibility there. So in the first sense, you were saying responsible in a retrospective sense, um, and in the sense that is relevant for blameworthiness descriptions. But I would say very strongly related to that is a what you call a a, um, a concept of responsibility as say having an obligation, having a responsibility. Or having now a role or a duty to do something. Um, and so sometimes, sometimes people call this role responsibility or, or sort of duty or obligation responsibility. Um, and in that sense, yeah, that and that it certainly seems very forward-looking because I now have an obligation to see um, to make yeah to to make amendments. So. But I think that that's just a different concept. It's a different kind of responsibility. It's, in some sense, you have a responsibility. In that sense, it's uh, you sort of I have that responsibility right. to 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 make an amendment. But it's not that, that shouldn't be collapsed into just responsibility uh, yeah. for. An and you can see it. You can divide them up. Say like your child may have 
done something wrong that caused a bit of a mess. Yeah. And as the parent, you are you're not responsible morally responsible for what they did necessarily. Yeah. Perhaps nobody is because they're too young to be responsible yeah. themselves. Yeah. Yeah. But you have a our responsibility forward looking to address the problems yeah. that have caused, right? Yes, yes. Very you can you, see that they're not the same thing. That's right, that's right. And you can uh, very often, you, for instance, uh, you've got a whole bunch of roles or tasks that you need to do at, at, in your job, but for whatever reason, um, you may not be responsible for um, your failure to fulfil them. So you have our responsibility in general to uh, facilitate the meeting, but for whatever reason, um, maybe you have a really strong excuse for not being able to facilitate it, um, say you get really sick, um, so you might still have a sort of standing responsibility to facilitate it. But you're so sick um, that you have then have an excuse which undermines an, uh, an attribution of being responsible for your failure to um, fulfil that responsibility. Yeah, there's actually a really great quote by H. L. A. Hart from the I think that thing that those are the initials from 20th century. Uh, it's, and it's it's like this one paragraph where he puts in all of the different senses of the word responsible or responsibility, yeah. okay. basically all of them, yeah. in one paragraph um, right. to illustrate just how multifarious, I suppose, the, yeah. the concept is. Mm. Um, and, and, and I suppose the importance of trying to trying to pick out exactly what concept you're talking about. Um, and uh, it's really good because there are other kinds of ones too. For instance, we'll say that the um, the detonation was responsible for the avalanche, you know, uh, and uh, and maybe you just sort of say the detonation, maybe it was generated by some random random thing, maybe not a person or something like that. You're just sort of saying, well, it's just causally responsible, right? Causally, you know, that's no that's not moral responsibility. <laughs> um, and then there are other kinds of responsibility too. Uh, uh, that so, for instance, you can have the capacity to be morally responsible, simpliciter, like, and that usually is cashed out as sort of the capacity to be responsive to moral reasons, just, just at any t given time, sort of the general capacity. Um, it's then a further question about whether in a certain circumstance, you were actually responsive to moral reasons. Mm. Um, anyway, that, that particular, this responsive to moral reasons view that I prefer about, uh, that I defend, um, is, I'll say, one kind of option. That, but there are other kinds of views about what responsibility for mm. X means, and uh, they will probably disagree with that kind of reasons responsive account. So one very plausible view is that to be responsible for an action is just for that action to be uh, to manifest your quality uh, a certain quality of will mm. that you have yeah. um, or manifest you somehow. Yeah. Sometimes um, this is a sort of little theological interlude, um, but sometimes I've wondered to myself how in the Christian tradition do we understand Jesus taking on taking the taking on the guilt or taking on the blame for the sins of the world or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, does this relate to any of the notions of responsibility that we've been talking about? Yeah. Because it seems that he isn't responsible in that backward-looking sense, right, for, for the, the mess of the world. 
Um, is it more that he takes he takes the responsibility in a forward-looking sense by saying, "I'm going to be the one who initiates," you know, the um, yeah the, the sorting out of all these problems. Um, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Um, yeah, I think a taking responsibility line seems pretty plausible to me. I mean, unless you're happy with sort of a mysterious metaphysics, you know, on which he literally does become responsible in the full sense for everything that did <laughs> that had happened. But surely we want to maintain the perfection of Jesus, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. as Christians. But um, I think a taking responsibility view uh, is seems. Seems to make sense. Uh, it, it's again, it's very hard to to understand what that really in, in, it means. If it like the obligation sense, might, might, it, that might be pretty plausible. So they take Jesus is taking the the responsibility, the sort of obligation to change the world in taking the blame or something like that. Mm. Um, uh, though, though, again, I, I'm still unsure about what I'd say about him taking the blame for it, you know. Maybe taking the responsibility in that obligation sense, but that certainly doesn't seem to... There doesn't seem to be a corresponding uh, concept when we're thinking about taking the blame. It seems usually if we're taking the blame for something, it's... It, you know, the thing is still ongoing, you know, um, and and you're and you're now and you now have realized that you've done something that was somehow wrong and, um, but then don't we talk yeah. about sometimes I took the blame it wasn't my fault it was actually so and so's fault but I realized that it was going to be really detrimental for them if it got found out that they did okay, it. Okay, okay. So I stepped up and I took the blame. Okay, okay, yeah. Right? So, okay, yeah. That's, that, that's a really good um, question, just sort of uh, pushing for further clarity. I think that um, in, in that case, you're not taking the blameworthiness. You're mm -hmm. taking the response of blame, yeah. you know, which you may think was worthy, um, did, ought to have a worthy recipient. In other words, like the person who actually did it was blameworthy and really they should be taking the blame. Um, but for some, for some reason or other, um, they shouldn't, uh, for, in the circumstances, they shouldn't take yeah. the particular response that of, of um, like an emotional response of resentment or a, say a, a certain kind of like a confiscation or a certain kind of act, outward blame action, you know, it's like a, a verbal condemnation or something yeah. like that. You might, you might think that in the circumstances um, it would it would be best for you to take that response yeah. on behalf of it, yeah. um, but I think that that wouldn't imply blameworthiness, that, or your blameworthiness, or even that you're taking responsibility uh, in the sense that it's sort of like that person has handed over the reins to you, and now you're fully responsible. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly I, not operating within the strict parameters of justice. I guess that's no. Point, yeah, yeah. I guess that's that's and, right. And so you are. You're transcending those parameters of justice because you see that, for example, you might see they're not capable of addressing, of taking the blame for mm. this. They're not capable of addressing the situation. This is certainly the case with Christianity. Yeah. Um, so 
if justice would just follow through, well, it's not going to work out very well. Yeah. And so um, it's going to end in destruction. So well, it either ends in destruction or somebody steps in who is capable to, to, to take things forward and to, um, and, and, and to address the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but it's, it's, I think it's a, I bring up the, the issue, the Christian issue, but I think it's much more than just a, an issue of understanding Christian doctrine. It's an issue that we all face in this world because we all experience, um, either ourselves or others, taking the, the blame or the responsibility for things that, that, that didn't cause. Yeah. Like it's quite a common thing and, it and is. People, people like get really frustrated about it because it's not fair. Yeah. So the world isn't fair, and, the, and these injustices seem to arise often, and sometimes they happen to us, sometimes they happen to somebody else. Yes. Um, but it seems to me there's no getting away from this thing. This, this, is, this is how, unfortunately, yeah. the world works. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I... It's, it's a really interesting issue um, that we're talking about, you know, and, and it's sort of a shame that I, um, I haven't... Address some of it already, you know, in my own research. But it's the nature of nature of things. At the moment. I don't think and you're blameworthy. No, no, but you know, in, in analytic philosophy, is things are so zoomed in that right. even fairly closely related topics, you know, are not addressed. But but what, what I will say though is, um, the, I wonder if someone might say, for you to justifiably take the blame where you weren't blameworthy, um, you still have to, be, in some sense, believe that you were somehow, res in the background, responsible. Right. Somehow part of it, somehow witnessed to it, or... And so maybe, maybe if you then tie responsibility and play with it as closely together, you will say, yeah, very, very indirectly or partially yeah. uh, blameworthy, but, but certainly not the main contributor, and so you shouldn't really be blamed for it. So, cause, so, right. so that's really important. There's a distinction that they make between um, generally being blameworthy for something, um, even to a minimal degree. So it seem, does seem to be a scalar degree concept. But, um, but distinction between generally being blameworthy and being in, in this very moment worthy of that person's direct castigation or criticism of you, you know, or behavior modification as a result of what you did. Um, that, that, that's different. Um, yeah. So it's, blameworthiness is sort of in principle open to blame, yeah. whereas um, the other one is much more in that moment it would be, you know, the moral, it, it would be morally right in some way for that person to blame you because of the, I don't know, the severity of what happened. Um, but very often people are not, so if I found out that you're blameworthy for something, um, I might not have the right standing to then blame you um, for it, um, even if I came to know all of the relevant facts um, uh, about the situation, partly because, um, well, at least outwardly blame with you, partly because maybe we just don't have the kind of relationship where it would be right for me to kind of go, how dare you do that, you know, <laughs> sort of, um, so I need to have a certain kind of standing with you, uh, and philosophers have been working on those kinds of conditions. So the conditions under which it would be fair for you to blame someone, where blame is understood in either a judgment sense, an emotion sense, a judgment plus a desire sense, there's a co-native theory of blame, um, 
or a an outward blame sense, like literally verbally condemning them or or excluding them from certain assemblies or you know you know something like that. So there seems to be real, there's a real ethics, in other words, being developed about just blaming. One of the conditions, usually, for justified blaming is that um, put forth is that the that um, the person you're attempting to blame is actually blameworthy. Um, but there needs to be extra conditions, like for instance, mm. that you're not a hypocrite, that yeah, okay. the nature of the relationship is such that you can you can actually blame them. So uh, I mean, I wonder in these cases where you're taking the blame for it to be justifiable for you to take the blame, you, it would, rather than someone else, even if, it's, it's a situation where that other person probably ought to take the blame, but for some reason, well, in principle, they have the lion's share of the blame, or the blameworthiness, so to speak, yeah. such that if the circumstances were permitting, uh, they are the one who ought to feel the emotion, the the resentment or the indignation, um, mm. you know, the harshness of blame. But for some other reason, you, they can't. Um, but you see that you are somewhat responsible in what happened, you know? Yeah. So maybe you could sort of somehow, maybe it's required for you to take the blame, that at least you are at some minimal degree blameworthy, maybe in the background. Yeah, at least you, you could have done more. Could have done more you know. somehow, somehow. Uh, so maybe something even like weaker, like that, um, for you to then justifiably take the blame, but in the circumstances you should take the criticism because it would be better that you did rather than they did. Um, but that would, I don't know, that, so that would somehow, to me, slap it back to that justice, that system of desert and so on, which, yeah. you, were, which you were putting, which you were sort of saying is the natural is the natural morality which we have um, taken on mm. yeah um, I was thinking too like then there's a distinction between Christ taking the blame because he's put forward as the the, the spotless lamb or something you know yeah. the blameless one but he seems to indicate when it comes to forgiveness and that sort of thing and showing mercy he pretty much says You've been showing mercy, so you've got to pa you've got to like pass that forward. So you have an obligation now to show mercy because you've received mercy. Um, and sometimes he puts it the other way, like um, unless you forgive, you won't be forgiven. So that you're, you being a forgiving person is a precondition for receiving forgiveness, something like that. So then the the aftermath of this blameless one taking the blame mm -hmm. is that it has exposed everyone we all realize that we are implicated that we are somehow worthy of blame in general and therefore it, 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 it kind of um, inaugurates this economy of yeah. taking sometimes taking the blame for individual things that strictly you know you're not the main person responsible but this is like this new economy that's been mm. opened up. Mm. Where this is this is the only way to um, to address the problems of the world. Um, you can't just do it on pure justice of the ones that are most responsible take the most responsibility. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And so actually it's not it's like, ah, suddenly we're all in this. And so the question is, how much responsibility can I take for the problems of the world um, in order to cooperate in the sort of restoration of everything? Mm. Which is quite a different mindset from a pure justice. It is, program. it is. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's a big and ongoing question, isn't it? And I think, um, and I think that sort of to analyze that, I'd probably say that it's, you know, it, it's, I, you know, sort of put that, that, you know, that's that sort of taking that, taking the responsibility in that sort of obligation sense. Like we, I think we all have an obligation to seek, and broadly to seek justice, you know, sort of a broad obligation, mm. to seek justice, to right wrongs in the world, to bring it back to how it ought to be, you know, mm. and, and in some sense to take on that obligation uh, you know, is to is to sort of seek justice and to take responsibility for it sort of, and, and, that, and that might even be not just in the sense of taking on that obligation um, first of all I mean that's interesting to say because maybe we already have the obligation but to actually take responsibility for it to the point where you are answerable for f failing to to seek out justice, you know, like mm. so that you would be blameworthy for failing to seek justice in the world. Mm. Um, so that so that it's linked to that strong responsibility for wrongdoing um, concept. Mm. Um, and I think that you can do that. You can. Uh, I think that that's certainly something that taking responsibility will do. It'll give you. It'll make you now. Um, answerable for whatever happens, mm. almost, you know. Uh, it means that people can hold us to account for our success, uh, for our successes and our um, failures, you know. Mm. Um, and and I, I'd be inclined to think that uh, we, we all sort of, in some sense, ought to take responsibility. Mm. It's, it's, con it's a little confusing, though, because if we ought to take responsibility for, uh, say, seeking justice in the world. Mm. That, that sounds like you're saying you have an obligation, so you have a responsibility <laughs> to take responsibility as right. well for seeking justice. And you, only, you, don't, you not only have an obligation to seek justice, you have an obligation to take responsibility <laughs> right. for seeking okay. yeah, um, yeah. Just a random point. So you've read the piece that I sent you, and one of the themes that it begins with, really, is this distinction between moral and pre-moral guilt. How do you, how do you, what do you think of that distinction, and um, you know, how does it maybe fit into the conversation we've been having so far? Yeah, oh, all these great questions. Yeah, so. Um, so let just to be clear about the concept. So pre, um, and this is sort of me asking you, mm. pre moral, pre moral guilt is the kind of guilt that you have, in some sense, before you've woken up to the fact that you've been doing wrong. Uh, is is that right? Whereas, um, it, it, or it's the kind of the guilt that you get. 
when you realize that um, even before you've hurt anyone, that it's inevitable in this world that we have a kind of self-bias. So this is drawing on this idea of Robert Spayman. Um, you've got this... You've kind of got the self-bias. You know that you you are intimately acquainted with your own feelings and your own world and, part, and not very well acquainted with all the people around you and living this finite world and we're going to end up uh, stepping on each other's toes. We're going to end up hurting and harming people mm. precisely because we don't have full empathy or understanding of, peop- um, of people around us in some ways. It's, yeah. it's, we're, much, we're so self-focused. Mm. And, and so... Uh, so is that what sort of pre-moral guilt yeah, is, or is it somewhere in there? I think that's not a bad description. Um, there's a few other, other parts to it, I think, yep. that are important. But what you've said is right. Um, the example he gives is you're on this packed train and come to your stop, and you've basically got to push a few people out of the way to get through the doors when they open, because <laughs> they're not open for very long. No, and, no. And the interesting thing is that as you push past people, you say, sorry, oh, sorry, oh, like <laughs> oh, sorry, oh, sorry. <laughs> and so you, and you do mean it, you do mean sorry in a certain way, but you'll do the same thing tomorrow. So it's not, it's not a, it's not a fully fledged moral thing, because with a, moral, yeah. a fully moral sorry, then it should be like, I'm not going to do this again if I can help it. But yeah. on this level, it's like, I am sorry that the conditions like of my advantage correspond with the conditions of your disadvantage. disadvantage. And it's, I think it's, it's a big part of just being bodily, mm-hmm. right? Because I right. can't occupy the same space that you occupy in. Yeah. Um, and we can't eat the same piece of cake. Yeah, yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, and we're going to bump into one another by, by accident. Yeah. And um, I'm going to impose myself on you with, and there's nothing I can really do about it. Like I can't get through life without ever imposing myself on others. Yeah. Um, making them maybe feel uncomfortable or, or taking away um, some kind of good that they m- may have benefited from or whatever. Yes. Yeah. So I'm breathing this bit of oxygen that you'll never get to breathe now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so life is full of those little things and we tend to say sorry, not with a breathing example, yeah. but we do tend to say sorry at different times when we, when we step on, on toes. Yes. To avoid it. Yes. So yep. he's asking, why, why, why are we saying sorry in these cases? Yeah. And um, and so that's how he comes up with this whole pre-moral guilt. But I think it's really important for his uh, understanding of moral guilt, because um, the moral kind of flows out of the pre-moral. Pre-moral is like this is just our situation. As I think it's animals who have woken up. But, yeah. but remain animals in a but way. But remain animals. So they're, they're not the same as just animals who haven't woken up. But they still are animals, meaning you know, you've still got a physical body, you've still got major limitations. It's just now you can look on those things and yes. notice them and reflect on them and take an attitude towards them. Yes. Which perhaps the animals you know, are unable to do. Um, and so you become responsible somehow, there's this word again, Yeah. for this, even though this is just the way you find yourself. Yes, yes. Yeah. I think that's, that's very interesting. Where the moral guilt, so does that come in when, you know, it's, so, it's, so it's, it's a case where you really have wronged someone and 
and you're seeking and you need to seek uh, redress or, or remedial action or something like that. You know, mm. you, you, yeah, and sometimes I think the moral guilt is when you... Okay, so you're aware that you're this fallible, limited creature, but you kind of use that as an excuse. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's one thing is to push your way past people carefully saying sorry. To get yeah, yeah. Another thing would be to use that as an opportunity to express your frustration and yes. to just bang someone with your elbow. <laughs> um, yeah. And so you're, you're using um, the whole premoral thing as a pretext. Yeah. Um, I think I, there I used the example of your alarm wakes you up in the morning yes. and you think, I'll just doze for another three minutes. Yeah. But there's no snooze alarm or anything, it's just... No. And so you kind of know that if you go back to sleep again, you know, you'll probably sleep for another 30 minutes. Yes, yeah. Um, but in the moment you just go, ah. Oh, you tell yourself, I'll wake up in three minutes. Yeah. And yeah. so you're using that pre-moral thing... Um, to then... As, as a kind of cover for your laziness. Yeah, how interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that the the, con the claim is that in wrongdoing there's generally some kind of self-deception going on there. Yeah, yeah. Some, something of that self-deception. Yeah. yeah, so um, I, at one point I really liked the point of sort of saying that, you know, these pre-moral apologies you know, they 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 they're appropriate because you know, so they're not full apologies because the uh, people ought to realise that these actions are not full expressions of ourselves. Right. You know, uh, and um, it's, it's due to our own, partly due to the fact that we realise that we're in this finite world, these concrete um, needs and so on, which are gonna impact and infringe on other people's mm. fulfilment of their needs yeah. uh, and you know we have this self this crazy excessive sort of self bias where we're totally focusing on our own needs and so on um, you know it's as though to be fully expressing ourselves um, it's, as, it's as though one wishes one were not self-biased, you know, or, or, um, or that we're, when we're not in this concrete physical world where we would constantly, you know, mm. so it's kind of like when we're saying sorry, it's like, oh, I'm so sorry, but this is, this is inevitable. Yeah. But, I, but, but, but I, I really feel for you, but I can't sort of fully appreciate it. I'm sorry that I can't fully feel for you because yeah. I'm, I'm in my own world, um, you know. Yeah. Um, I can't fully express empathy. Um, uh, Sort of, sort of to you in some way mm. and so it's as though you've kind of got that but we're in this sort of damned to this condition where we just are in this in this kind of realm mm. um, and these apologies are ways of signaling that Look, I, honestly I really am sorry uh, I'm sorry that I have to have to be such an inconvenience to you um, in my ideal world you know We'd all be immaterial, and we, <laughs> and we wouldn't have to step on each other's toes and all this jazz. And I would be able to know exactly what you're like and how you're feeling, and be able to act fully in response to reasons generated by how you're feeling. 
and so on. Yeah, and yet it's it's a little bit paradoxical because <coughs> if we were immaterial, we we wouldn't really be able to have a relationship. So right, yeah. The basis of our relationship is also the basis of me standing on your toes. So it's it's a, yeah, it's a funny yeah. sort of regret because it's not just a fully fledged regret. It's not like no man. I wish things were different. Yeah, right. Um, it's like it's it's this tragic existence or something. Yeah, you know? like yeah. Things are so wonderful and yet things are so sad. All yeah, at the same yeah. Time. All at the same time. Um, I'm so it's such a privilege to to stand here huddled with you in the train, um, but. It, but it's, it pains me that I have to bang you out of the way with my elbow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really pains me, and I'm sorry, yeah. Um, so so, it's, so it's, it's a definitely a mixed feeling thing. It's a complex thing going on yep. there. And it's that whole thing of that we're, well, for Spamen, we're spirit, you know, which is the reflexive, I'm aware of myself thing. Yes, and, conscious. And we're, and we're body, we're matter, bumping right. into one another. Yes, yeah. And that's interesting. I mean, that's an interesting kind of ontology grounding some of what we're talking about. Um, I, I, I wonder if there's another way of analysing this too, where it might be to say, look, um, when you're treading on people's toes and you're feeling like you can't fully empathise with other people in terms of their world and so on, um, you're not actually doing them a wrong. You're not wronging them. Um, so it isn't. So it isn't a moral. Uh, it's not. You're not morally responsible. Anyway, um, you're, you're, and and so it's not a moral apology that you're making when you're issuing these, so to speak, pre-moral apologies. Yeah. Um, but you are responsible for an inconvenience, uh, or, or or a less than ideal standard. Um, in in the literature on wrongdoing and, and sort of moral evaluation of actions, there is actually a class of actions that some philosophers have called the sub-orogatory, the sub-orogatory. Um, and those are the actions which, they're not quite wrong, but, but they're permissible. So they're within the realm of the permissible, but they're yeah. still not really nice or ideal. So imagine, so imagine that it's a classic sub-orogatory um, action would be, uh, <coughs> Uh, you're getting it onto the bus. You see that the only remaining seat, full seat, with two uh, uh, seat for two people, oh, yeah. um, is the only remaining one you could easily take. But behind you, you see that there's a couple uh, who could, who would definitely, and say you, you know, they would definitely take that because they mm. would sit, be able to sit next to each other. Yeah. And yet you're like, oh, I don't really care. I'm just, just going to take that spot anyway. And they can just kind of sit. In, uh, in the aisle seats. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, well, it's kind of... It, it, it's not wrong for you to do that, really. Mm. Actually, you kind of have the right to. Yeah. First and first but it's, Yeah, first and first <laughs> But it's kind of ratch. It's, it's sort of ratch, ratch actions, so to speak. It's, they call it subarrogatory because it's not, it's not sort of prohibited. It's not obligatory that you don't. Um, it's sort of sub, somehow. Um, uh, another example is... Uh, imagine that. Okay, so uh, imagine that your friend owes you money, and you don't really need the money. You, you got a lot of you got a lot of money for some reason, 
uh, your friend owes you the money. But then you kind of go, actually, I need, I, I, you don't lie, you say, I, I want the money back, um, please give me my money back by tomorrow. Um, and suppose that they actually, you know that they're sort of somewhat financially tight. Right. So it's kind of like, come on, like you, you should just, just ease up a little bit, but you sort of demand it back yeah. by a certain time. And, and, the, and, and, and actually your friend can give you the money, it might just make it, things a little bit more tight yeah. for them, but yeah. it's, it's just a little bit like, okay, come on, like maybe you're within your rights to, to do that, so maybe it's permissible for you to, but it's not quite, uh, but it's still not very nice, maybe, you know, yeah. so, so, so th this class of things, and so you might actually understand some of these examples that he's using, um, like the example of trading on people's toes, might be subarrogatory, <laughs> so kind of ratch, um, well maybe they don't even class as ratch yet, I mean, I think that, I don't know if the I word ratch would apply. because if you take the train example, like, He's talking about the person who's who's actually trying to be as careful as possible. Yeah, they're actually trying but, to be but careful. But they still end up, you know, having to sell... You, isn't, there's only one way when you're in a really packed, sardine-like situation. And yeah. nobody knows that you need to leave the train until you bump into them. Like, that's the only way... In, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you have me, to sort of... But you, you say, excuse me, but you're also like, <laughs> pushing through because you've only got about three seconds to get out. Yeah. And, um, and so you might be doing everything pretty much physically possible to limit this inconvenience, but you're still saying sorry, 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 sorry. Yeah. Um, and so it's maybe still a bit, um, yeah, it's, it's not quite in that situation of... Wait, it's almost like where you intentionally go, I don't really you, you have the thought, oh, it would be nice to reserve the seat for the couple behind me, um, but I'm just going to take it anyway. You know? Yeah. Um, um, you know, where it seems to sort of, an in, you sort of intentional... You intentionally do something that maybe is yeah. that, maybe that might qualify it as ratch or subarrogatory, but it may be in the case where you're trying to not tread on people's toes. You're doing your best to, you know, you're not really doing something subarrogatory. Yeah, and and I think in those two situations you mentioned, you're you're kind of acting in according to what pure justice would allow. Yeah, but we actually regard someone. Mm, a little bit negatively, who acts that way. Yeah, yeah. Because we expect more than just what is technically pure justice. Yes. That's not a very good relationship to have with somebody. Yeah, or because, pure sort of permissibility, yeah. Yeah, like we, we, we need quite a bit of give in our relationships. Yeah. So, basically because we can't fulfill the demands of justice all the time. And it's, it's this, what we were talking about before, we're in this messy world. Yes. Where... There are um, all the time lots of people falling short of what's just. Yeah. And then there's and there's a need for people to go beyond what's just because if if everyone else you know if we either just did what was just and nothing more or less than justice, then the net result is a lot of injustice. You know yes. I mean? Yes. So you kind of got to go beyond justice partly in order to make up for the injustices that exist. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah. So, and, and there, see, there's a seemingly infinite number of ways that you could express that. And so one of them is that you notice the couple behind you, so you're attentive. Ooh, they might like to sit in that seat. This might just make their day that tiny bit more enjoyable, um, given, given the kinds of struggles that they probably have to 
encounter in their life. Yes. I'll, yeah. I'll just do something small <laughs> that, um, you know, that just provides a little bit of light for them. Yeah, yeah. You know, even though I have no obligation to do it such, but yeah. but there's a kind of meta-obligation to, to, to try to go beyond justice. Well, see, that's interesting. Mm. Um, so they call that the super-rogatory. Super yes. Yeah. And the literature. So where sub-rogatory is sort of just not very nice, super-rogatory is when you're going above and beyond obligation or the call of justice, maybe. Yeah. Um, and actually, I, 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 upon reflection of the the, the toe-treading case, um, that seems to be a case of a failure to do something superrogatory. Maybe. The superrogatory thing might be um, actually to just not move, you know? <laughs> or like the ideal, the super in some sense the moral ideal is to not it's not cause anyone any inconvenience whatsoever. Wait till the end of the line. Yeah, yeah. No one left on the train. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then walk back to your... <laughs> <laughs> walk back. That seems unreasonable, right? Yeah. But, but um, that's well, super well, especially, Sorry, I, 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 just a small interruption. Especially given that the reason you need to get off the train is not just for your own benefit. It's to get to work on time because there's people yeah, lying on you, Yeah, that's right? right, that's right. I mean, in this case, it, it seems that, in fact, it would be silly to do the... In fact, you know, so, so I mean, of course, if, if you flesh out the case like that, then it would actually not be superrogatory for you to wait. That would actually be wrong yeah. if people are waiting for you. you know, sure. So that changes the sort of deontic evaluation mm. um, of, the, of the act. Deontic meaning something to do with right, wrong, yeah. obligation. Um, yeah, but, um, but I'm, now, I'm now just thinking to myself, you know, there are these interesting cases where you fail to do something superrogatory. You just do the, you just plump for the, the normal, the, the permissible. Um, where you're not culpable. In fact, you don't do something subrogatory, actually. You just do something very morally neutral. So it's actually, it's fine, morally. Um, but where it might still make sense to issue an apology, in which case you might kind of get something like a pre-moral ap ap apology. I mean, I guess I, I wouldn't t call it pre-moral. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, we're getting uh, quite into this, but... Uh, so, one, one philosopher has this interesting example of... Her name's Elizabeth Harmon. She has this interesting example of... Uh, so, so, say you're a an academic, and you're marking essays. Mm. So it's this case where um, you, you've got a marking deadline um, to meet, and you've told them all, you know, that you'll, you'll get them done by... Uh, you'll get them done by the morning. Uh, and you've got this one student left to mark. It's really, really late in the evening. Um, and you could, and, and you've been working such long hours, you badly need to sleep. Um, your partner's really wanting you to be, to be in, to, in bed with you. Um, it actually would be better for you for the next day in terms of overall productivity if you went to sleep and you didn't mark the essay now. Mm. Um, and you figure it would be better instead to just say, um, just quickly write an email to say, look, I won't have your one done by tomorrow morning, but uh, uh, I'll, I will, um, uh, but I'll 
make sure I get it done during the day, but I'll release everyone else's grades in the morning because it's sort of important or something like that. Um, the question is, what should you do? Should you mark the should should you either email the student, you know, um, about it and and sort of look after yourself, and also, yeah, but sort of honour the fact that you told them that they'd be released in the morning, um, or should you? actually just go, no, I'm just going to work on this essay, it's going to take me another hour into bite into my, into my night and I'm, I'm not going to be very good tomorrow. Mm. Um, but at least I will have met my application by the morning. Sure. So it seems that, t to me, uh, this, this might be a case of uh, kind of failing to... So if, suppose that you go, oh no, I'm just going to go to sleep. You're probably doing. You're probably failing to do the morally supererogatory thing, which would be to mark the student's essay. Um, but you. But it, you're not blameworthy for it, and 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 you don't even do something that's like offensive or somehow supererogatory. Uh, so it seems morally neutral. You know, it seems perfectly permissible for you to do that. Yeah. It's understandable given the circumstances. Even though you could have just done a little bit more to have, to have, have completed it on time so that the student could have it in the morning, earlier yeah. in the morning or something like that, you know. So it's this interesting, it's kind of a dilemma case. Yeah. Um, but that's, uh, I, I think that this, this particular version is not Elizabeth Harmon's version, but it's sort of inspired by... Um, like uh, uh, that paper that I read. Yeah. And that seems, you know, it would make sense to say, I, I'm sorry to the student, you know, in the case. It, it's kind of like, I'm sorry. But you do have very good reasons not to. And it's not, it doesn't seem that you are really, maybe you're responsible for that failure to do something supererogatory. Yeah. But you're not responsible for any kind of wrongdoing such that you're blameworthy for it. Um, and, and, and that similar similar and that's also kind of forward looking interestingly like these this the case of stepping on each other's toes mm. um, you're yeah yeah so there's a there's a you're re recognizing your limitation that's right because right. you've only got a certain amount of energy and you've only got a certain amount of time in the day yes and you maybe you've you couldn't have really managed your time any better yes yes so it couldn't right. be avoided yeah and, yeah and so it's that kind of i think that does probably fit into the pre-moral type thing. Yeah, okay, where, good. Where you're just like, sorry, this is just... Yeah, um, this, this is just the way it is. Limited old me. Yeah. And um, I'm sorry that limited old me may have caused you some inconvenience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or think of a pastor who has been thoroughly, is almost burnt out, you know, and is needing, really, really needing important time away mm. from you know her congregation and she's, and she's like told her congregation look I'm going to be away for the next for the next month yeah. you know or um, also and it's sort of a sabbatical and I really need it and mm. um, uh, at these times I won't be contactable or something like that or maybe it's a week you know so I, something like that it, it, but it, essentially, we're thinking. Actually, it would be really beneficial for her to to take this this time away. Um, yeah. She's really, really kind of stretched thin and just needing a rest and so mm. on. But then suppose that 
One of her congregation members rings her while she's on sabbatical with this really, you know, this, this genuine issue that's going down in, her fam- in the person's family. Mm. And she feels the pull to... She feels the pull to deal with the situation. But she kind of goes, well, look, I, you know, look, I'm sorry, but I just need to... Um, you know, this was within one of the times where I said I wasn't available and... I'm on a holiday, but please talk to this person, this person, this person. Mm. They should hopefully help you, but I can't do it. Yeah. You know, put it down. How do you assess that action? Like that seems, that seems to be lifting up of the self above the interest of another person. So that seems to be an interesting case of where the prudential might maybe overrides the moral if you think that in that case she does something perfectly justifiable and and you know I'm inclined to think she does because yeah. she needs to look out for herself you know I, I don't know if um, I put the prudential against the moral there because okay her own um, what's in her own interests is also in the interests of her congregation ultimately right oh you know okay saying? yes sure so um, it's not purely for them that she's doing it it's also for no. her but it's it's like well, what's good for her is actually good for them in the long term. Yeah, in an indirect sense. And um, so it's a it's a kind of win-win, even though it causes that inconvenience in, in the you know initially. Mm. Um, and I think that's how we tend to think about it if we're really thinking through a moral situation, like you're thinking. Yeah. Um, What's good right. for me? What's good for the people directly around me? What's good for the next like layer of people? And and so you're actually trying to you're trying to do whatever's gonna generally be, um, or you're trying to find the good. Um, that's this intersection of the goods of yourself and all these people around you. Yes, you know, to, exactly. And you've, you're limited in terms of how much you can know about what the good is for others and yourself. But yeah, but that's how. You get your bearings. That's how you orient yourself morally. Yes. I suppose. Yes. That's um, and and because that gives you lots of clues, and so it stops you from from being in these eternal dilemmas about what to do. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, I mean, I think there still are cases uh, where the prudential is overriding. Even you could spin a case where, yeah, obviously, like it's uh, the person is uh, requiring that your arm be taken off, you know, um, in order to uh, deal with some lesser moral, sort of a small moral problem, (laughs) and say that your arm is not needed in any way for for the help of other people in the future, you shouldn't really sacrifice your arm Ah. to to deal with this problem, Um. (laughs) you know, so... But how helpful is that example? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's an artificial case, and so you might have methodological problems with appealing appealing to artificial cases to illustrate. Because you're saying, um, what would be issues. the sensible thing to do in this ridiculous situation? <laughs> um, Don't give up your arm. I think it's, 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 <laughs> it's like I'm sorry, I just can't help you, even though. The purely others regarding thing for you to do would be to get rid of, get rid of your arm. Yeah. 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 Anyway, <laughs> I mean, of course, uh, I, uh, um, I, I think that you could even spin this case in, in terms of maybe the uh, abortion if if the if pregnancy if will result in your death. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, that's... Though, again, you could still justify that uh, morally as saying it's better that we go through the abortion um, because... Um, well, my, my being alive is a significant uh, moral reason. Um, oh, it's a significant morally, significantly morally valuable thing. I think yeah, it's know. fairly rare that, um, with the abortion thing, it's fairly rare that you get a situation where it's one or the other. Yes. It's normally um, the mother lives or they both die. I think that would be more yes, common, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. And in that case, I think you can be justified in respectfully removing um, the child from the womb, which is not the same as cutting it up into bits. No, you know, no. Respectfully moving the child from the womb, which you know will have the result that the child won't survive for, yes, for, for yeah, a minute outside. That's right. But you kind of, again, it's like, it's almost this pre-moral thing, right? It's like, there's this sorrow that, that, this, that we have to do things like this. Yeah. Um, so that, actually, that's a really good example of a pre-moral situation, you know? But, say, yeah, but, but, it, but, but it has been documented cases where it is either the mother or the child survives. Um, yeah. And in that situation, hmm, how would you speak about that? So the mother then has a decision to make. And I think it's a similar sort of decision that a parent might make when it comes to saving their child from some danger, you know. Um, yeah, sure. General, right? And so do I, do I risk my own life in order to save my child? Um, and I don't even re really think it's worth commenting on that because I think people can instinctively, you know, work out what they think is right in that situation. Yeah. Because I, I don't like making a moral imperative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Let them. Yeah. 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 But I think people, so a lot of people would feel a moral imperative there, like, yeah, I've got to jump in and save my child even though there's a high risk that I won't survive. Uh, or yeah. um, and we generally regard those people as heroic. Yes. Um, oh yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Those ca cases seem clearer to me. Um, mm. Somehow, yeah. Partly because it's sort of the sacrifice of yourself for someone else, you know, yeah. for someone, for actual the, the, su the survival of someone else in yeah. those cases. Because, and I think that the manner in which you you you, you reach the the end is really important, and it's not um, a case of pre-moral guilt when, um, with the way that abortion is generally done, where it's like an, an actual intentional um, dismembering of, of yes, the body, yeah. because um, it seems to me that you can't do that and say, oh, it's such a shame that we have to do things like this, because you don't have to do don't things have to. like this. Don't have to. Um, but it certainly is the case where, you know, the, the body of this child is respectfully removed and given a certain honour. Yes. Um, then I guess yeah, then you can have that spirit of of genuine sorrow or yeah you know, yeah. yeah yeah and um, just uh, I've got sort of a question just about your this this uh, excerpt from your thesis um, so we as humans we what sets us apart from animals is that we become aware of ourselves mm. and uh, and then we become aware of the fact that you know we're in this finite world and we're causing these minor inconveniences and harms and there's, there's a sense of inevitability that we can't really um, 
can't really transcend you know, inevitability of, of, of harm and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but you say that we, we're still very much uh, are prone to kind of just letting oneself be driven by one's uh, evil desires and so on, and, and, and to kind of almost make oneself fall asleep again, you almost drug drug yourself, making making yourself uh, sleepy, you know. Yeah. Um, and so Spayman, you know, he he believes that sin is letting oneself slip back into that pre-waking naturalness where one no longer notices the reality of the other, as you, as you wonderfully put. Yeah. Letting, letting oneself slip back into that naturalness, you know, and then this is then kind of further cashed out as almost like a, a, a culpable blindness. Yeah. Like you know that you, you know that you really should be awake to the other, mm. but you just decide, look, it's just too much effort. I'm just, I don't really care. <laughs> I don't mm. care. You know, I, I, and, so, and that's that, that's sort of that tension that weakness of will that mm. sometimes we'll just give in and we'll just go, I don't really care. And yeah. and, um, and I'm not even going to learn about that person because I don't really care about them in the first place. And, um, yeah. and so it becomes a kind of, a, that can then result in ignorance about them, about yeah. the other. And so that seems to be a kind of culpable ignorance, doesn't it? Yeah. Kind of tying back to what we were uh, talking about earlier on. And, and I think... So you then sort of say that, that, so the way that you sort of describe it seems to be in terms of willful ignorance. So some people talk about willful, you know, you're, you're literally willfully choosing not to. So for instance, you're walking down the, uh, a, a, a crowded street along, uh, in, in a city and you just kind of go, I don't really care that there's heaps of people around me. I just really want to read my book. <laughs> so you pull out the book and you're you're actually intentionally making yourself blind to the people around you and so you're walking and then you and you whack into someone. Right. Yeah, it seems you're culpable for that, you know. Yeah. Um in, uh, yeah, uh, even though you weren't aware of the person. Yeah. You know, it's not like you intentionally hurt the person. Now that can un that could be easily understood as a, a form of recklessness. So it's not actually negligence um, in the sense that it, it would be treated like that in the law. I think in the law it would be treated as a kind of a case of recklessness where you know the risk and then you intentionally, but you intentionally do it anyway um, and, and, and the risk obtains or, you know, actually the, that something happens. Um, but but that, I mean, there's still a sense in which you're willfully ignorant and you're willfully ignorant of the fact that you're about to walk into someone um, who it's going to really hurt for some reason, you know. Yeah. Um, so, but I guess my question is, is sin always culpable like that? So, is sin, um, is, is sin the product of a willful ignorance toward the other? Can, so first of all, you can, you can ask the question of whether sin always involves this ignorance. Um, Anyway, the second thing is um, whether sin, uh, whether sin, 
kind of, oh, whether if you are going to ignorantly sin, whether it's always willful, because sometimes sin can be, um, it, it seems to me, at least, that you can sin in a way that, uh, that where, where that sin issues from moral ignorance, or ignorance that it is sin. Mm. Um, and so you think that you're doing the right, maybe even the right thing. Um, uh, and that ignorance itself wasn't willful, because at some earlier time you didn't willfully sort of incapacitate yourself. You didn't willfully make yourself blind to mm. the moral reality of, of the sin. Mm. So I was wondering about that, and how, how you'd sort of think about that, at least in relation to payment. And so when you're using sin, are you assuming that that's blameworthy type? Well, I guess there's one question. Do you think that sin is always culpable? I think so, if we're talking about it subjectively. Like, if you, cause sometimes, you, you can talk about the kinds of behaviours that we class as sin, so objectively. Yeah. But it doesn't matter that everyone who does one of those is necessarily guilty. So, but here I'm talking about guilt, where you are guilty, or blameworthy, I should say, or culpable. Okay. Um, so I, I'm talking about, yeah. That's sort of culpable. Yeah, I am. Um, and so I guess so I'm arguing that there's a sort of partial seeing and partial blindness involved yeah. in, um, in our acts of the, the bad acts of the culpable. Um, and there kind of has to be, I'm, I'm arguing that there has to be a mixture of those two things. Um, that there has to be a bit of sight, a bit of awareness, because otherwise you wouldn't be culpable. Yeah. You didn't see things at all. Yeah. But they're also, um, there's necessarily, like you never see the full picture. Yeah. And perhaps if you saw the full picture, then it wouldn't be possible to to sin like that. Oh, um, okay, yes, so that's I quite embarrassing. That's, that's what I'm saying. So, one of the things about um, the vision of heaven, like the beatific vision of seeing God face to face, they say you're free, you're perfectly free, but you can no longer sin. Yes, like, yeah. Well, how can that be? I thought, you know, to be free was to be capable of sin. It's like, that's only true when you don't see everything. Yeah. But once you see everything, then you're like, um, you're just drawn to that light. Yeah. And so there's no nothing else to be drawn to. Yes, yeah. Right? Yep. Um, given that if you think of human beings as a capacity for like truth and a capacity for what's good, then when the, the full truth and goodness is placed before you or like there's nothing else that's going to tempt you yes yes but when that truth and goodness is largely hidden yep then mm, there's a whole lot of other um possible things that could that could partial truths parts things that are partially good yes less good whatever that that could attract you yes interesting um, and you could let them attract you and so i think part what stands behind this partly is an understanding of the human person where we are attracted by things which lead us to act in certain ways but we have some control about how we orient, orient ourselves and what we get end up yeah. being drawn in by right yes you know? yes yeah and you know if you get too close to the thing you'll get sucked in <laughs> and you'll get to the point where you're not really the decision has already been made or something yes, like that. Yes, yeah. harder and harder you to... You lose control yeah. in some sense. So. But there's definitely moments where you, where you were... You in had enough control. control. In enough control, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I think I find it interesting that it's that, it's that mixture of 
ignorance and knowledge. Yes. That, and that, that's the line that we walk. And so we have a, an ability to reduce our knowledge even further. Or we've got a periphery. We, you know, you see the beggar on the side of the street and you're like, I don't want to engage with this person. So I'm not even going to make eye contact. And if I don't even look at them directly, <laughs> it won't even imprint on me properly and I'll forget. <laughs> so I'm not saying that that's yeah, a Yeah, you're sin. negotiating moral outcomes almost. Or, yeah, yeah. It, if I really look hard at this person and meet their gaze and then they speak to me, like it's so much harder to, you can't just ignore them. Or yeah. if you do, it's like a real harsh thing that you've done, right? So, and I'm not, I'm not saying that it's always immoral to walk past someone no, on no. the street. I'm just saying that in a way that expresses something of the dilemma that, that we find ourselves yeah, in. Yeah, the world, yeah. And the responsibility that we have over what draws us. And, and, yes. Because uh, there's so many things that could draw us. Right? Yep. And so we're always like trying to limit, limit our vision in certain ways so that we can actually walk uh, a path of some kind. But the, the sort of decisions we make about how we limit that vision, they can be sort of motivated by benevolence or mm. they can be motivated by a little bit of a twisted desire. Mm. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. Um, and, um, and it's so hard to sometimes even know what we're doing at the time. Yes. And so sometimes it's not till later we look back and we think, oh, I can't believe I yes. did that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm trying to account for the complexity of our moral experience. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I, Spayman points to that, um, the words of Christ from the cross, and he points out how paradoxical it is. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Yeah. You know? And you normally think, oh, if they don't know what they're doing, then they're not they're, guilty. They're not guilty, yeah. Um, but, but then if they fully knew what they were doing, they couldn't, have re they couldn't repent anyway, because repentance is always like a rethinking which implies that you didn't fully know, like you weren't fully aware of everything. Yeah. Um, and so, but then if they, sorry, yeah, if they knew nothing, then they're not guilty. If they knew everything, they could never repent. And so forgiveness only becomes a thing when you're somewhere in between. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's, that's so interesting. Um, and I... Um, yeah, and, and I... I mean, I think, so So that idea certainly goes back to Plato, you know, if the good was fully around you, you know, you, you would just choose that, because mm. that because that's what you are, you're attracted and orientated toward the good, you mm. know, and if you really had true knowledge of all things, um, it's interesting because you might say, in this finite world, though, we couldn't have, so, when you say, well, what you can say is that all the, 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 the set of all things that you could know with regard to any moral situation couldn't include that ultimate good um, precisely because of the conditions of our um, finiteness, you know, the fact that we're limited and that we've always got these competing demands on us and mm. time pressures and, and, and so on and, and often moral conflicts and so mm. on. Um, and, and so, and so this vision of having a, 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 a truly, a full comprehension, in some sense, of the good, um, may not be really achievable because 
there there isn't anything like that to know in the world that we are in. Yeah. You know, like yes, maybe in the new heavens, new earth. Mm. You know, in the in the future, mm. but sort of in this realm, um, maybe that's not possible. So I I guess I'd be interested to ask quickly how you would respond to the idea that someone knowingly and willingly and sober-mindedly does evil. You know, can there be a wholehearted evildoer who knows it's wrong, doesn't even believe it's good to be doing it, you know, believes it's evil, you know, uh, or at least believes that it's good to be evil, mm. you know, um, and just does it anyway, you know, and, and they know all of the facts, mm. um, the, the sort of non-normative facts, um, they know all of the low, at least you might say the low order normative facts, so they know that it's wrong to do the yeah. act morally, but they've just got a higher order moral judgment, or not really moral, but you know, yeah. radically more normative judgment where they go, yeah, but I'm just going to do the whole, so what you might call is that they are, uh, they're not acratic, they don't act contrary to their better judgment, but in fact they're encratic, so they act in accordance with their better judgment, namely, to do evil. Yeah. No, <laughs> do you I, think there are I, cases Sort of, that? sort of. I, I think, um, and, I, and I doubt in another part of the thesis was this question which is called radical evil, which is right. when you do evil because it's evil. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. whether or not that was possible. And um, Hannah Arendt, who commented on um, some of the trials, Nuremberg trials after World War II, um, pointed out that some of these Nazi perpetrators actually just came across as really ordinary human beings when you yeah. thought they would be monsters. Yes. And in fact, they were just sort of following orders and didn't really give it much thought that they were cooperating in, in the extermination of like hundreds, thousands of people. Um, and so where she expected to find, yeah, this radical, monstrous evil, she just saw, like, just ban banality, like... Yeah, cogs in a machine. And so she, she argues against the possibility of a, of a real radical evil, of a doing evil for the sake of evil. Um, yes. I tended to agree with her because I think that even behind what seemed like the worst intentions is some kind of nod towards the good. Yeah. So even the maybe the um, the greatest um, expression of maybe human evil might be something like it would be better if um, if none of this existed if it was all destroyed and you find that um, Jordan Peterson's pointed out you find that kind of idea in some of the diaries of um, of the, um, the mass murderers like the, the high school shootings and stuff like that they've decided. They just want to like wreck That's the world. Right. That's right. And they, and they they have a hatred for being, and so they destroy a whole bunch of stuff, and including people's lives, and they destroy themselves. And that's all part of it. It's consistent that yes. they destroy themselves. Uh, I know Chesterton said something like, "When you kill, when you commit murder, you know you kill one person. When you commit suicide, you kill everyone, because mm. you're you're you're, from your point of view at least, you're wiping out the whole earth." Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and so that's that's a, a radical, can be anyway, if it's not just psychological despair. It can be a radical form of hatred yeah. of being. But even there you're saying it would be better if nothing existed. And so you can't get away from the fact that there's some notion of the good mm. in your intention. 
um, as twisted as it might be. Yeah, yeah. It's like you can't get away from the good because good by its nature is is the thing the kind of thing you you aim for. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that always has to be present somewhere in um, even in the intention. Mm. Um, as dark as, as, as the action might be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, on that very dark note, <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe we'll draw this very interesting conversation to a close. Um, cool. Thanks so much, Tom, for coming in. And I no think worries. that our, your work and mine did sort of tie together quite yeah. nicely. No, that's right. Um, to all those uh, listening, thank you for listening. Um, hopefully you got this far uh, in this long-form conversation. Please like, comment, share, or even if you want, would be interested in coming on this podcast, feel free to get in touch with me at uh, cameron.s at cda.org.nz. You have been listening to Eager Feet, a conversational podcast where we journey from the mundane to the sublime and back.